0: Hello, you are listening to Inside the Box, the podcast where current research and museum objects serve as starting points for conversations about our past, present, and future. The Paracas textiles are more than 2,000 years old. They were found in graves in Peru in the beginning of the 20th century. In today's conversation, we will find out what is so remarkable about these textiles, and why someone spent several years making replicas of them. We will also embark on the journey from Peru to Gothenburg and back again. With us today, we have Anne Peters, an archaeologist specializing in the study of fiber artifacts, who spent 40 years studying the Paracas textiles and funerary practices, primarily in Peruvian museums. Welcome, Anne. Lovely to have you here. Thank you. And we also have Oscar Lara, a Peruvian artist based in Stockholm, doing his PhD at the Royal Institute of Art. Oscar is also the one who made these replicas. Welcome, Oscar.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
0: It's time to open the box. Today we take out a picture. The picture is of the work that Oscar is currently exhibiting at the museum. Oscar, what do we see?
1: Well, in the in the picture that we have in front of us, I can see a copy of um, of a Paracas textile that is by name at the World Culture Museum of um, the textile two hundred and nine. It is um, basically a woven base, color on red, and then you will see in the picture we have like about uh, four figures all of them of different colors.
0: So just to make it clear, we are looking at a replica that was made recently of of textiles that are 2,000 years old. We're going to go into the specifics about those in a bit. But Anne, this is the first time you see these replicas. What is your first impression?
2: I find it so exciting that they can be... um, there in the museum that people can see them even though the original textiles have been returned to Peru. This is so thrilling to me and I hope that this happens all around the world. And the figure is a figure I love and I have, I first drew this figure in 1975 when I first began to study these textiles. It's part of a family of figures that are, at the same time, warriors and mythical beings. Uh, You see their people standing facing us, but they have wings. Um, I could talk to you so much about the components of the figure and our work to understand them. But I I find this to be very beautiful. That's
0: amazing. And please do contextualize uh, a little bit this discovery. What, what was the Paracas culture around these textiles, where they were found in
2: these graves? Well, I'll start by saying that our understanding of Paracas culture is evolving. It is constantly changing with new discoveries and much has been learned in the past 20 years in the region of Ica. Uh, but my, the, the, my understanding of the material we're looking at, which is from the Paracas site that that a particular place is that it's the intersection of three cultures. One is what we call the Paracas tradition, which is from about a thousand years before what we consider the Christian era, that is to say between 3000 and 2000 years ago. And that is the background for the site and the textile traditions, they were textile obsessed people. They made every technique known to humankind in this region. Then there's the Topara people who came into the region and apparently conquered it and interacted with the Paracas people. And they're the ones whose burials had the amazing embroidered textiles in them. And the Nazca people who out of that interaction arise and become the next great society of the region. And that's the style of the textiles. Many of the ones we see are what we call early Nazca. So in fact, what we're seeing here is a, a historic process involving three different societies.
0: But Oscar, what is your, what, actually, what is your relationship with the Prakas textiles?
1: well, my relationship with the textiles is um, it has like a, like a double enter point, I can say it. One is uh, obviously I come from Peru. i am I am well familiar with um, with, uh, with pre colombian cultures. They has been within my understanding of what is uh, my background in a sense, uh, since I was a little kid. But then also in this specific occasion with Paracas textiles as such, and with the the collection that Gothenburg hosted for more than 80 years. Then I have a relationship since the 2008, since actually late 2007, when I was asked to be part of the A Stolen World exhibition. And then my first impression, um, not my first impression, but my, my first um, requirement in order to me to be able to, to come up with a proposal for, a, for an exhibition was that I wanted to see the collection because it was for me extremely, uh, it, it was not disturbing, but it was very, very intriguing To get to know that there was such a amount of textiles here in Gothenburg. So I got so many questions. So that's kind of my entry point to this collection. And then I had an exhibition in 2008. I was part of the Stolen World exhibition that we can, I guess we're going to talk about that later. And then that was the, um, like, that was what sparked this major research that ended up on the production of these replicas. That is the very beginning of my PhD.
0: Fantastic! I, I can I can just see how you kind of reacted to seeing them for the first time. It must have been quite a remarkable experience. And what about what about you, Anne? Uh, what is your relationship?
2: <clears throat> well, when I was a university student, I first saw the embroideries like this one in museum exhibits in the United States. These were actually textiles that had been Taken out of Peru in the very early 20th century, before Teo's excavations at the peninsula. And I was so fascinated by their imagery. I started with the imagery, and then by the, the quality and the character of the textiles that I started to draw them. I went to from museum to museum. I drew everything I could find and see. I looked at all the books. And then I did my senior project um, studying everything I could from the United States. And then I got a fellowship and I went to study in Peru. So that started my life trajectory and I've worked with them uh, on them ever since.
0: Fantastic. And
2: we're going to get back
0: to these details. We're going to talk about the 2008 exhibition. We're going to talk about how they traveled back and forth. But first, we really want to dig a little bit deeper into What are these textiles? Why are they so remarkable? Uh, What are they made of, etc.? So let's start there. When and how were these discovered? And we'll unpack the
2: rest. Well, they were first known because uh, because Paracas is a port, a modern port. And people who were working in that port... Uh, rode vehicles over the site and disturbed tombs and they began to loot those graves and those textiles went into private collections.
0: And when are we time-wise
2: approximately? Uh, the, the beginning of the 20th century at really the end of, of the 19th century um, by the beginning of 20th century this was already well underway and so these people, local people in the region of Pisco and Ica, the, you know, who had, were, were socially prominent people, had collections of these textiles. One of them was an engineer who wanted his son to go to, co- to college abroad. And so he sold his collection to the donors of the American Museum of Natural History. That was the first collection to go abroad. That was the one I studied. Because of that, the museums in in the United States and around the world, that it was it was the most exciting thing. It was the the rage of the decade. They all wanted a textile like this one, and that started the looting to be much worse. Teo, who was the first native Peruvian, by native, I also mean of Andean descent, Peruvian, to become an archaeologist at a time that archaeology was in its infancy dedicated himself to finding the site and saving what was left of the site for Peru.
0: And what, what did they find? They found these textiles, but they also found more, right?
2: <clears throat> well, the, the tombs um, are... are there's, they're pits dug into the desert sand in a very special place, which is a steep hillside overlooking the Bay of Paracas with very stable climate conditions. It is humid, but it never rains. Because of that special place, textiles were preserved in the desert sand, but also the person buried at the center was preserved there, which is these, the preservation of the dead was an important part of the ancient Peruvian practice. The, and they also after wrapping people in the textiles, they rewrap them and they had ceremonies with them for a long period of time. We don't know how long. And the kinds of objects placed around them are the same ones imaged on the textiles with staffs that are wooden staffs and spears and clubs and um, the feather, feather work, uh, so f- such a wide range of objects and they actually represent several different societies that were interacting with each other at this time. So the range of styles and types of objects is immense.
0: And there are some things we, we, we know, but there are also a lot of guesses around this, right? Uh, do we know, for instance, why these were so incredibly beautifully made?
2: the question. That's what shocked people in the beginning of the 20th century. That's what made them so important. That and the striking imagery, I think those things are interconnected. So now we're in the realm of, of hypothesis because this is a society that, that, that whose way of recording history is no longer accessible to us. So we don't have a way of reading what they said or thought, their own reasons for this. We only can start from the objects themselves. And by studying not only the objects, but the tombs and the relationship and the layer in the mummy bundle and the things that were placed around it and the arrangement of the bundles over time, my hypothesis is that these people's social and political relationships were negotiated through gifts of textiles. The textiles represent their makers, the skill and craft and style of each community that made them, the people who wore them in ceremony, and the gift to the dead, who were the ancestors of another people, and that that web of relationships expressed in funerary ceremonies and through textiles were what made life possible in a society that didn't have a state or a passport or Away, you know, people's lives were precarious, and their ability to travel long distances and meet people unlike themselves with other political leaderships and survive were based on creating relationships. And these textiles were part of that.
0: <clears throat> and Oscar, I want to let you into the conversation. Uh, what What do you think makes these textile textiles so special as cultural heritage?
1: Right, what I well I have I have been researching the um, the subject uh, more from the political aspect of uh, what has been built around the object, uh, how the object has been used and by whom. Uh, and in that there is a link to what what do we understand for heritage and what is conceptually heritage, you know, and how this play a crucial role in the modern concept of culture. Well, to me, what I think is that this has a trade connection to this hypothesis that Anne just described to us, is that there are so many question marks that um, no one really has a clear answer to it. So no one really knows uh, why the textiles were so beautifully made. And no one really has is 100% sure what, what was exactly the functionality of, this, of these textiles. And... Um, so in this, I think that in this blurry uh, zone of uh, so many uh, knowledge that has been lost um, is where uh, like modern culture has land, the weight of uh, preciousness. Uh, is this level of sublime till some extent that, you know, you're and this is more or less a very very um common relationship that peruvian have with our own heritage we 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 uh, have this approach to heritage as something that is sacred and uh, something that is sublime and supposed to be admired so um i think that is is there where um it has been a really good advantage of this blurriness uh, by cultural institutions, by um, um, museums, uh, researchers as well. Uh, and I think that that is what made them today you know, so precious.
0: And would you say, does that lead into why you also then spent many, many years on making replicas of them? Do you want to tell us a little bit, maybe first about... How were your replicas made? Who actually made them?
1: Um, Yes, I yes, of course. I'm well, yes, this lead as yes, this has a straight relation to why I made this project Um, because the project was made, uh, was landing in a in a political confrontation in between Peru and Gothenburg City. And this confrontation was based um, on a claim that the Peruvian government was doing to to Gothenburg because wanted to have the whole collection back to to Peru. The grounds of this claim were based on an exhibition, uh, a stolen work exhibition that um, was at the World Culture Museum from 2008 to 2010. So basically, what um, what the, amb- the ambassador of Peru, Gilbert Chauny, at the time, uh, in his note, what he was uh, saying was that um, like Peru is demanding to all these objects to be repatriated because you are making an exhibition where you are telling us, you know, how you stole these objects. So to me, um, what happened here is that um, Peru felt this as a very big provocation. You know, first, uh, the obvious were loot. Then, you know, you smuggle the objects using um, diplomatic uh, tools for taking them from uh, Peru to uh, Gothenburg. And now you make an exhibition for telling everyone how you, how you you get your hands on these objects. I think that Peru found this as a provocation. Well, this confrontation is what was the base of my project. I just thought that it would be um, from, my, from my, my side as an artist, as a researcher, I thought that it would be a really uh, important comment to, to propose to make replicas only using uh, Swedish resources.
0: Um, would you say, Oscar, uh, these new, the replicas, the new textiles that you and your fellow artists made, have they generated any new knowledge about the original textiles?
1: I think that one of the most, um, like, I think that one of the most striking things uh, in this case is how demanding the process was. And um, the, the process of making them was very straightforward. Um, I mean, to to, to whip the um, uh, the base, uh, it was it's, it's not it was it was no 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 strange at all for them, but the thing is that uh, everything was extremely demanding, like uh, the um, the thickness of the yarn is something that is no commercial uh, nowadays. So in order to actually get the yarn uh, mm-hmm. as we need it was a process that was uh, trying trial and error process all the time because uh, we were succeeding so, so with one spinning mill. Then when we were ordering uh, all the package of yarn that we supposed to, that we needed, then what we got was not what we thought we we were ordering, it was, was too thick. Then at the end, we managed to find someone that wanted to give it a try, you know, very persistent until finding this this really, really precise thickness of, of this. I mean that, in that sense, I think that the the textiles can give you a really um, um, a really good um, like knowledge, uh, perhaps new knowledge of of more or less uh, which could have been the major, the, the biggest uh, like hurdles into making these textiles. Uh, the effort was uh, like two to me, to someone that is an artist that used to work with collaborations, that used to work with uh, initiating exchanges with people. For me, the exchange that I had during this process was extremely exhausting, was incredibly demanding. And and this contact that a practitioner has with the material just exceeds uh, any expectation that uh, that an artist can have. I have my own agenda in the project, but then everyone is coming in and has their own knowledge and has their own expectations in the project and their their own relationship with the material itself. The textiles, I didn't know anything about textiles, so I had I I had shortcuts, but they didn't have any shortcuts. For them, you know that by by centimeter we need to have eleven lines by twelve lines. And if we were getting nine lines by ten lines, for me it was fine. For them, was no fine. It was not, fine. <laughs> it was, not it was a big no no. So these things, I think that it was a lot of knowledge uh, in there.
0: And and can I ask whether you allowed to use scissors? Because I know scissors weren't allowed two thousand years ago.
1: Well, I in in the weaving process, we we needed to to do the the big piece onto on two parts, because the modern looms are not so huge, as for women, for women, something that is like 167. Uh, wide, So we needed to do it on two, on two parts, and then to, to put it together. So that perhaps is a bit of cheating here. Um, but then the rest of it was done. Yes, yes, as as uh, just as all the information we got, the paragraph has done.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Oscar. So, Anne, I want to let you in again, what would you actually say is the Gothenburg collection, and how did it end up in Gothenburg?
2: Well, I, there are people who know much more about this than I do, of course, and they are there, are with you in, in Sweden, because my specialty is are those textiles that remained in Peru. Uh, but what I, what I, my understanding is that after Teo's ex, uh, excavations. There was a lot known in Lima about what he'd been doing on the peninsula. And they, they, they pulled everything they could out. Whether that was a good thing or not, you know, the, it's hard to say. But given the later looting, it seems to have been a good thing because it's some of the b- best preserved material on the south coast. They took it in with Teo's team, took the mummy bundles in old trucks over rutted roads all the way to Lima, A very difficult journey. They couldn't get everything on the trucks. So the Peruvians think that possibly the, the looting that happened immediately after that, in between 1928 and 1930 would have been materials that were left right from those excavations. And that's one reason why this material is so sensitive um and that because of the intervention of the swedish ambassador these looted materials were obtained and sent by diplomatic pouch to sweden and i have to say that that was being done all the time and in fact has been done up until the last 20 years what does that actually i, I mean? don't know if it continues it's i know but this is a kind of abusive practice that has been So common that diplomatic pouches have been used to transport antiquities from one country to another, despite the laws in place in both countries that would impede those materials. So they're basically getting—they're
0: getting around custom practices. Is that is that what they're aiming for? Yes.
2: And this has happened decade after decade. It's been a very important part of the illegal uh, transport and sale of antiquities. So that that's how the materials got to Sweden. and They were initially part of, of as I understand it, of, of the uh, association, the commercial association of Gothenburg. Right? It was not. There was no museum at the time, as there is today. And so they became part of the World Cultures Museum after that museum was founded, um, as a, as a gift or transfer, or they were held in custody. But, uh, but you, I'm, I'm, you know much more about that.
0: What I want to kind of bounce on what you said, um, they were smuggled out. And then this word smuggled or actually stolen as well returns in 2008. And that is here at the museum. We have an exhibition called A Stolen World. And that really sparked a chain reaction. So as you said, Oscar, the textiles were with us here in Sweden or in Gothenburg for 80 years. But then tell us about this chain reaction that happened after this exhibition.
1: Well, um, what happened was that um, this, uh, as I I see, uh, like the reason because of the reaction, was because this exhibition uh, came up in a very uh, specific um, uh, political uh, uh, time, so um, we have that the exhibition was called "A Stolen World." Then, as well, uh, I my my participation to the exhibition was with an installation that was called "Robberies by Request," and the installation was basically a, a research of a robbery that was done, you know, uh, to a small museum. From where all this material come from, and I was kind of uh, trying to show the other side of the coin um, behind these big collections. So all these fins were very up to the surface, and and for a world culture museum or for an ethnographic museum to talk about so upfront uh, on these matters, um, it's, it's it's very special. Um, and and you don't often you don't often see this so but i think that uh what sparked here uh, the discussion was that um like the 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 ambassador of peru got well aware of it and that awareness was through a lot of uh, of course through a lot a lot of work through through everyone doing a bit of work through their their uh, their parties, their corners, you know, everyone were, we were all talking up to try to to really see what was going on here. You know, we all that were quite confused, uh, to be honest, about uh, uh, what was this exhibition really. So, but this was complemented by uh, the situation in Peru that Alejandro Toledo was just recently um, claimed, uh, the material that Hiram uh, Bringen took with him uh, to Yale University and uh, very successfully uh, has done uh, a claim and a repatriation of material. and then so that was Alan already
0: Gar- an ongoing case with the us and Peru.
1: Yes, exactly. And then you have Alan Garcia that was finishing his mandate. And then as most politicians, uh, if there is something there that is you know on the on the plate, you want to kind of show that in case this happened, this is something that I did. So Lan Garcia expressed in a conference that you know and all that material that is in Sweden, you know, need to come back to Peru. That's the only thing he did. Then after that, all this became more um sensitive and and became more formal, let's say. Then you have that on 2000 and, and, um, 2010, on 2009, the the ambassador of Peru sent a note to 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 the city of Guatemala, uh, like asking uh, properly, uh, formally, um, that this material should be, you know, uh, repatriated. Uh, that like it was, I would say, it was. Uh, Tilson Esten was well taken by Gothenburg. Was really like the people at the museum. I would say the people at the World Culture Museum was quite stressed. And I, I think that no one really thought that it would happen.
0: Did they not foresee uh, this with the title of that uh, exhibition? Yeah.
1: Uh, yes. I don't think that anyone actually actually foresee that this outcome would be, you know, on the horizon. This request that was put by the by the ambassador was also. Um, landing in a very in a very special moment in Peru because in Peru uh, we had uh, Alejandro Toledo who had just recently successfully uh, claimed material from Yale University that material that Hiram Bringen took uh, from Machu Picchu. So um, Alan Garcia was finishing his mandate, and then until 2012. Uh, Peru felt that Gothenburg was saying yes, no problem. I'm gonna give you back the pieces, but that nothing has been done until 2012. So it was in 2012 when Alan Garcia uh, really started um, like a more of a, of a, a formal uh, complaint uh, under Peruvian laws.
0: Why do you think nothing happened throughout those years?
1: Um, well, I actually, I actually think that um, in, in Gothenburg perhaps has been a matter of money. Because one of the things that Peru was demanding was that, uh, I think, uh, as I understand it, was that Gothenburg should pay for everything, for all transport. And perhaps, you know, there were a lot of logistic things that needed to be sorted out. But on the Peruvian side, um, you get very suspicious about this kind of things that has to do with heritage and institutions. Uh, so I understand that, that um, the Peruvian government really thought that, um, that perhaps Gothenburg was just playing around with them. Um, that's my impression.
2: Well, I think it's important to remember that the Paracas textiles have always been very political in Peru from the very beginning. And they're a symbol of of national pride. Uh, So they're also a symbol of the pride and value of the Andean heritage and the ancient heritage of of the country. At the time that Teo excavated Paracas and that the Gothenburg textiles were taken out of Peru There was a debate in Peru, and there were many people who thought that Peruvian national history should begin with the Spanish conquest. We must remember that. That was the context of the time, that Teo's excavations at Paracas changed the vision of a national museum, made it possible to establish a national museum that centered pre-Columbian heritage. So that's one reason why Paracas is a a topic important for every school child in Peru. It's the part of the center of the pride that links the ancient Andean societies to contemporary Peruvian people. Um, And so in that context, the role of the museum, the National Museum or the Regional Museum, is fraught and difficult. For that reason, the robbery in Ica in the early 2000s was a terrible blow, not just to museums in Peru, to the conservators that had carefully worked with those textiles, to the school children who had made donations so that those textiles could be taken care of. But it was also a blow to Ica as a regional museum, where you had people in the National Museum saying, oh, well, they can't take care of their textiles. And you do know, have to, I, I see also, these relationships of, of, of colonialism and extractivism exist within the country. There's a lot of tension. And the, the director of the Eco-Regional Museum, who is a good friend of mine from the very beginning when we were both were studying archaeology, came to me and said, do you have archival photographs? We have to put this stuff up in Interpol. We have to make a, make." replicas of these images so that the children of Ica can see that we care and that we're trying to get them back and they did they recovered one of the three textiles two of them are still missing all I would say is that that Oscar was researching the Ica robbery and I was involved in trying to get those textiles recovered we have been in the same world for decades and yet we only meet now I find this to be very interesting
0: Oscar what's your comment on that
1: Yes, I, just, I, I, felt, <laughs> I felt very excited when Anne was talking about um, the Regional Museum of Ica. And as well, um, one of the things that she mentioned about this to be a blow for the region of Ica, I felt that that was very important. And that's something I learned during that time when I was researching uh, locally uh, over there. And on the, for linking this to the political situation and to the debate that was organised by Gothenburg and the and the Museum of War Culture in 2010, um, one of the things that I very humbly try to ask to to everyone in the panel in that debate was that if there was any reflection on how. Uh, there will be potentially a balance in between the cultural life of the region of Ica and this material. Because to repatriate the material back to Peru uh, didn't really mean that this is going to make things better for what culture and heritage represent locally in Ica, from where all this material actually come from. So I was more, I guess I was more intrigued uh, about how deep was the reflection in terms of who is actually going to profit now out of the objects again.
0: And this follows really clearly onto then what happened. Because from 2014, the textiles started to be repatriated back to Peru. But where... How was that done and where did they actually end up? Did they end up in in Lima or did they end up uh, regionally in Ica?
2: So all the textiles have gone to Lima. And some of them, particularly the first group, went to the Museo Nacional, which is the center for custody of Paracas textiles historically and where the conservation is done. But then uh, other textiles subsequently went to the Ministry of Culture, which has its own storerooms for primarily for material that has been repatriated. And they were examined and have had conservation work done only in the Ministry of Culture and are still held there. And, and there are, the plans are that they are to be incorporated into a new national
0: museum. And what would you say, how has this returned? So finally, this past summer, summer 2021, the final shipment has arrived in in Peru. So how would you say that the source community, Peruvians in general, have received uh, the return of the Gothenburg collection?
2: Well, I think on the level of... media people are very happy and they think this is appropriate and they're glad that the textiles have been returned. Uh, Among my archaeological colleagues however many are concerned that they will not be able to study the textiles. Uh, So now they're back in the country but that doesn't mean that they are accessible for research. Uh, Before the course they were inaccessible because it might be difficult to go to Gothenburg. But now people are worried they may be inaccessible because the institutions holding them don't make them available to Peruvian researchers.
0: And what about you, Oscar? Do you have a different, uh, different way of thinking about it?
1: Um, no, I'm actually perhaps I got a different, a different uh, way how to get into the same conclusion. Um, I think that the text has now. Um, like the the repatriation of the that has been done on free um, on free shipments, as I as I understand, and this also lands in a internal uh, dispute, and and why uh, the the second shipment went straight to the to the Ministry of Culture, something that that uh, not even the 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 conservators, restorers that travel with the material knew they, they saw that landing in Lima in the Jorge Chavez, they would go straight to the National Museum. But then suddenly they ended up in the Ministry of Culture. And that is because, uh, there, there was also an internal dispute in terms of, of who is going to, uh, like who is going to apply power, you know, with this material. And then it comes the new museum as well, that also was a political a political decision, a museum that many technicians has recommended not to be built in this location because it's too close to the water, it's too close to, close to the ocean, and there is a lot of water underneath, very very up in surface, so it's not good for collections. But of course this is this is basically a political a political decision. So now who is gonna have? Uh, the access to the material that is also going to be filtered, uh, uh, as as everything else, and this, of course, uh, lead me back to my research uh, on the Regional Museum of Ica, and and this as, as as a researcher, as an artist, and and as Peruvian, you know, you get a bit sad. Of, of knowing how how little voice uh, the, the the people from the region from where all this material comes from uh, actually has in this in this uh, dilemma. Uh, but I totally agree with with Anne that I think that access to the material is gonna be a very big question uh, now in the future.
0: So if I would put this very. Big question to both of you. Would you say that this example of repatriation of the textiles going back from Gothenburg to Peru, has it overall been successful? Um, And what can we actually learn from it moving on?
2: Uh, I would say that the most exciting part of it for all, all of this, for me as a researcher, has been the imaging of the textiles. The high quality images of these textiles that were made available by the World Cultures Museum online have been a resource for Peruvian researchers, and that is a wonderful thing.
0: And what about you, Oscar?
1: Um, Yes, I think that, um, I I don't know. I'm actually quite curious to know what's gonna happen. Uh, I'm quite curious to know what's gonna be the future of this collection, Um, one of the, one of the typical um, subjects from where uh, museums advocate um, to keep material is that they they can they can give access uh, for research. Um, so I'm curious to, to to see if 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 we in Peru um, can can create a, a platform. Where this is gonna also be um, uh, proposed, and, and that material is gonna be useful, and is, and that um, I don't know, that that the whole repatriation process and all the problems that is uh, involved uh, worth, um, like uh, that the conclusion of all this worth all the all the nightmare that it was at a point. Um, so yes, I think that it's 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 quite it's quite difficult for me to to assess if this repatriation was successful or or, or not. I think that um, that um, it, as as I as I say before, it really respond to a provocation. I would say so. It was kind of like an action reaction uh, sort of thing.
2: And um, I, I yeah. I'd like to say something else that has been really inspiring in the repatriation process. And this is also related to Oscar's work. The Center for Traditional Textiles of Cusco created workshops for learning how to replicate the beautiful looped headcloth with the many different figures on it, which is one of the most famous pieces that returned to Peru. That means that contemporary Andean weavers from across the highlands of Peru learned how to replicate ancient techniques and engaged in competitions with each other making sections of that head cloth so that means that that links the the heritage weavers today the idea of recapturing the ability to make these ancient things and bringing them to our contemporary communities and that is directly related to the repatriation process and also to oscar's work
0: That's a lovely uh, final kind of uh, way of going into Oscar's work as a final part of the episode. Because your replicas, they also traveled to Peru. They kind of traveled the opposite um, way, one can say, right? And they did travel through diplomatic channels, did they not, Oscar?
1: Yes. Why? Uh, How? um well like as as i say before my my point of departure to this project was was from from fine arts from contemporary art and and in itself the project was was um to me um i was researching in which sense i can be um i can push my boundaries um as an artist and how can an artist could not only um Activate sim- symbolic politics in in the, in in these processes, but instead to be able to to jump into a political dispute that was ongoing and to to try to create politics within this. So I think that that was kind of one of the aims of the project. So one of the strategies was to could I actually make um, could I actually um, use all all my privilege as an artist and all my access as an artist in order to to make a uh, uh, practitioners into heritage fakers in a sense. So and that was kind of like a challenge to me. And then once we we achieved that, which was an amazing process and extremely demanding, where with a lot of learning of course. Um, the second big strategy was that, and from my from my position as international artist, could I also manipulate uh, like diplomatic means? Uh, could I do that? Could I actually get myself into this and and push my my privilege uh, and 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 the weight that I can highlight around this position of being of being an artist based in, in Lima and in Stockholm, to, to be supported by the Royal Institute of Arts, to to having an exhibition at the Museum of Art of Lima. Uh, so that was kind of... those These this were strategies um, as I see them. Um, so this second strategy was very important for the project because I wanted to to finish the circle, you know, replicating um, the initial means in which the texts were taken to Peru. So yes, at the end, the the Peruvian embassy sent my my pieces to to Lima uh, in a diplomatic pouch as uh, official documents.
0: And the circle was closed. So Oscar, we started the pos- podcast saying that or taking out pictures of your current exhibition uh, here at the museum and those were the textiles that been in Peru a couple of years and they, when did they come back to Gothenburg?
1: Well, the textiles actually just came back uh, this August and it was because of um, uh, just for this exhibition um, and and I find this occasion extremely special, um, if you ask me, this opportunity of, of bringing back my, my projects uh, to where the project started actually, after all these years, and to have the chance to exhibit them at the museum, and just uh, making like the counterway to the original textiles that just left from Gothenburg to Peru, uh, I found that everything is quite special.
0: It sure is. Thank you so much both for your insights into the Parkas textiles. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah.
2: Okay.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You have been listening to Inside the Box. The podcast is produced by the Museum of World Culture, and the Center for Critical Heritage Studies at the University of Gothenburg in collaboration with Folkuniversitetet. For more information about today's episode and pictures of the featured object, please visit the podcast page on ACAST. Thank you for listening!